You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 42 of the Crisis in the Church series. Today, we're joined by His Excellency Bishop Bernard Fillet, one of the four bishops consecrated by Archbishop Lefebvre in 1988. He, better than almost anyone, can help us understand what was happening during those pivotal days and what was going through the mind of the Archbishop as he wrestled with this momentous decision. But besides having an interesting conversation about church history with someone who was a part of it, we're also going to ask His Excellency, how can the Society of St. Pius X justify what the Archbishop did? On the surface, this was an act of disobedience against the Holy Father. According to the swift, severe response from the Vatican just days afterwards, this was a schismatic act. We'll welcome Bishop Fillet right now to help us understand what happened in 1988. Welcome to the SSPX podcast and our next episode on the Crisis in the Church series. And very happy and privileged uh, to welcome His Excellency Bishop Fillet. Hello, Your Excellency. How are you? Fine, thank you. Hello, Mr. Latin. Hello. Um, you're traveling in Argentina right now. I am in Buenos Aires, yes. Ah, excellent. Well, I hope the travels were safe and all right, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Um, Your Excellency, we've been talking about the history of the Society of St. Pius X. In our last episode, we went all the way up to 1988. um, Mm -hmm. And we figured there's no better person to talk to about this because, well, you were there. So our main question today is, how do we justify the consecrations of four bishops in 1988. But before we talk about that specifically, could we talk a little bit about the history? What was it that finally led Archbishop Lefebvre to realize this was something he needed to do? He must have been thinking about this for a for a long time. We even have found a, a note from him in 1982. Uh, in Albano, where he says uh, it is possible that one day we will have to consecrate bishops. So it's quite a long time, at least six years, you can see. Definitely, I don't, he was mentioning it, so he was thinking about it, not as a immediate necessity, but it shows that he was already looking at that perspective. And um, things going worse in the church and his health or his age, simply, because um, at the time of the consecration, there was no noticeable problem with his uh, health. It was rather the situation of the church going. Um, it's really interesting to see Archbishop always continuously hoped that there would be a change in Rome. There, was, there would be this kind coming to a realization that that's not the right way. This Vatican II, the reforms are harming the church and so we have to go back. Even when he consecrated us, he told us in five, six years, Rome will go come back to us. <laughs> and took took some more years before they they make the move. It, it was uh, in fact uh, the double. It was in two thousand that they came for the first time. And um, so these circumstances were 
But then more acute in 86 with Assisi. Mm -hmm. It is very clear that the episode of Assisi has been um, like a clique. Uh, uh, Archbishop himself said that it was one of the two signs he had asked God for. So, you see, Archbishop is reflecting, but he's also praying. He prays, he prays a lot to... Um, to see uh, what he, he needs to do. Is it, is it that? Should I do that or not? He, in fact, every night he would uh, go in front of the Blessed Sacrament every night, uh, at least the last year, 80, 80, since 87, maybe even before, but we know that. Mm -hmm. uh, so praying, asking God, asking heaven, what should I do? Should I go ahead? with this uh, measure, which is uh, really, really extraordinary, uh, very special out of anything known since uh, centuries. And, uh, but definitely, Assisi, this incredible event marked Archbishop of very, very deeply. That's so unheard. Uh, at this sermon uh, at Easter, I guess, was it 87, was it 86? So 86 would have been before the Assisi, but it was already announced. He says, who with this man sitting on, on the Sea of St. Peter? He is really, really disturbed. So that cannot be. He's the vicar of Christ. And to look, to invite, to look positively at the other religions as if the other religions were able to do anything uh, was out. It was, it was uh, difficult to imagine a greater, greater betrayal on the side of a pope than this one. Mm -hmm. And so that's one element. The other element, as I said, is uh, the continuation of the reforms. And uh, that was the second sign. Uh, it was, as you know, was in discussion. It was never cut uh, with Rome. And in um, Rome had accepted, Cardinal Ratzinger had accepted that Ashpilbefe would present questions, we call that dubia, uh, doubt, on um, the, the religious liberty. And in the spring of 88, he finally received the answer from Rome to these uh, dubia, to these questions on the religious liberty. And in this, they, Rome did recognize, yes, religious liberty is something new. It is something new, but it's okay. And, um, well, we know that the revelation is finished with the end of the apostles, the death of the apostles, and so how could there be something new? And, of course, Rome will try to say it is in the development of of the teaching of the church, but well, it's obvious that it is not. It, it is con contrary. Um, in 87 also, 
in a discussion with our uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, on this point precisely, there was a, a major discussion, major, major discussion in Rome. It is the end of July. And Archbishop um, Lefebvre had already announced, I'm going to make bishops. And so Rome, and there, there is a, a long, long uh, set of discussions with Rome, which will uh, find an uh, important point with the visitation of Cardinal Gagnon in October 1887. But so in July, Archbishop Lefebvre is mentioning the, the kingship, the social kingship of Christ, and Cardinal Ratzinger says something like, no, no, it doesn't work, it's not good. And that's really fair to say, but you are against 1,500 years of the church. And uh, Cardinal Ratzinger reflects and say, no, 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 it's not right, it's not good. So uh, just for the, for the people who listen to us, what do we mean with religious liberty? Precisely there, we mean the relation between the church and the state. And the teaching of the church has always been God and our Lord is the creator of every being, the one who is giving the existence to every being. So also to the state, also to the civil uh, society and government, it's, it's, uh, it's a point of faith that it is God and even our Lord himself who gives the power to anybody who has power. The President of the United States does not receive the power from the people who elect him. It's really the people who elect him, but the power he received from God. And he will give answer, he will give account to God. And that's why, let's say, be, being this dependency of every creature to, to God, every creature is also obliged to follow, to follow the rules, the laws of God. And one of these will will be to favor the the true religion. Of course, you can see in the states uh, you have as a principle uh, the state is independent, is neutral to any religion, and that's what you call religious liberty. There are other aspects of religious liberty, but that's a fundamental point which uh, <clears throat> is new in the church with Vatican II. Really, till, till then, the church has always said the state must favor the re true religion. And, of course, then, if you are in such a situation where you can't because of the historical situation, for example, you have a country with a, a mixed combination of many religions, you can understand that the state will not be able to get to that perfection and will have to give some, some rights and protection to the other religions. And that we call tolerance. Right. Tolerance. So the teaching of the church has always been for the state to try to find a kind of peace at the religious level is okay. But in the name of tolerance, not of... Uh, giving all rights equal because all religions are equal. It's, it's a different perspective. But with Vatican II, you at least give the impression to enter into this new system. And uh, 
so there is a very hot, we may say, discussion, because at a certain point, Ashton is standing up and he said, your eminence to, to, to Karen Ratzinger, for us, Jesus Christ is everything. Everything. We live for him. We live for his kingship. And um, obviously, Karen Ratzinger does not know what happens. He's, he's in another world. There are two worlds there. And even as we say, we, we, we cannot work together. You, you, you demolish what the church has built at the level of the human society. Easily said also, on the other hand, and it's another argument which is easy to understand for everybody, our end, the end of man is heaven. And the only organization which can bring us to heaven is the Catholic Church. Now, where does man live? He lives in a civil society. And so it is obvious that this civil society must do at the level of the temporal society, not supernatural, but natural. But this must procure all the means at its level for man to get to heaven and not multiply the obstacles by false laws, by uh, allowing on any kind of temptation and so on, as it is now the case. It is so obvious, so obvious that the society in which man is living all his time should be helping man to get to his end, which is heaven, and not open doors which lead him into sin. It's it's really obvious, but um, for us it's a mystery how this has kind of disappeared from the teaching of the church, and so this answer from Rome um, comforted comforted Archbishop Lefebvre in saying, "We have to do something." It, it's it's about the survival, not of a human work. It's it's never this perspective. It's a it's about the survival <clears throat> of a work which is part of the church and which is obviously procuring these means of salvation. Can we, um, could I ask you, Your Excellency, about the events leading up to the consecrations? In our last episode, we just looked at these discussions that happened. There were letters and discussions mm -hmm. back and forth. Rome agreed yeah. in principle to consecration of bishops, but they never gave a date. Um, so leading up to the consecrations themselves, you know, the week before, the night before, what could you get inside maybe the mind of, of Archbishop Lefebvre? Do you, what was he thinking at that time? And I know, I know that's impossible for you to say, but... You, you could well, we know what he told anyone. us. We know what he told us. So on the fifth, of the fifth of May, uh, you have till till then you had two two priests. It was uh, now Bishop Tissier and uh, Father Laroche on the side of society who discuss in Rome or negotiate. The Archbishop is in Albano, he's helping them, he gets the information, he tells them what they have to say and so on. But on the 5th of May, they are all there, and Cardinal Ratzinger too. So they are all the big guys up there. And 
that's the moment when Archelofev says, okay, on the paper, you said that I can have a bishop, and we have given you three names, as requested, the terna is given. And so when can I uh, consecrate this bishop? Because I have postponed it. I have already um, postponed it four times, if I'm right. So I could have announced this uh, consecration, but with the relation with Rome, with the discussion, so on, he had postponed. And now it's the 30th of June. And Karat Singer said, no, no, that's too much too, too early. We need more time. Then comes the question, and what about the 15th of August? Uh, no, it's possible in Rome, nobody works in August. Uh, so why not the 1st of November? Uh, no, you know, in, in Germany, to, to make a bishop, we need, we need at least nine months. Oh, so why not the end of the year? And now comes the, the answer from uh, Cardinal Ratzinger. I don't know. I can't say. And this led Archbishop thinking, so that's his in, in his head, uh, you play with me, you play games. You, you pretend that you're giving me a bishop, but you don't. You, you wait for my death. Mm. And nevertheless, so after this discussion in the, in the evening, the secretary of Cardinal Ratzinger comes to Albano because the discussion was in the Vatican. So he comes to Albano, it's Monsignor Clemens, and brings the paper which Cardinal Ratzinger has already signed, the famous protocol. And in this evening, Archbishop signs the protocol. He does. He even asked someone to take the picture, the photo of uh, the signature. And so uh, Clemens, Monsignor Clemens, comes back, go back to, to Rome with the text signed. And it is during the night because Archbishop is not at ease precisely with this answer from and with all the surroundings, it's not just one point, it's a whole thing, but you, you had this refusal of giving, giving um, this practical consecration. So at the during towards the, the very early morning, Lefebvre has written a new letter. To, I think to the Pope, and he says there four bishops for the 30th of June. He told us that will be the sign if Rome does uh, want us or not. So, and under this uh, big pressure from the Archbishop, will receive an answer which will say okay, 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 uh, one bishop one, not four, one bishop for the 15th of August so it seems, ah, okay, this time we get one the letter continues, but give us other names in other words the names which have been given have been rejected mm -hmm. And the text, uh, the letter says, other names which um, correspond to the profile of the protocol. 
And Archbishop Lefebvre to say, well, uh, we have given three names, we can continue, and Rome can continue to say, no, 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 because who knows what is the profile of the protocol? Who can say that? And so, despite the fact that on the paper it is said, yeah, you get one, it was obvious that, again, in reality, we did not. Effectively, we did not. It's it's tied. It is certainly a question of interpretation of the behavior, but given all the surroundings for the Archbishop affair, was it was clear. It's not what we asked for. We don't see this uh, support we need from the authority, and which led him to to go ahead. Mm-hmm. And so, in the beginning of um, June, Archbishop Lefebvre will announce publicly this time, we go ahead. So, in, in the head of the Archbishop is, uh, they, they play with us, they play games. Yeah. They, they are not sincere, they don't want really the good of tradition. Uh, and with all what has happened, he knows, he knows, for example, each time that some seminarians have left us, they were promised big things in Rome. Indeed, it never lasts. Rome did force them to go back to the new mass, to the, and so on. And right. he got even letters from seminarians who told him we were betrayed. You are, you are right. right. He has all that in his hand. Right. And definitely all this is conditioning him is uh, bringing him to this conclusion you you hear arguments often from uh, people who don't don't quite understand they say he just should have waited the the negotiations were ongoing they they would have they would have given him a bishop but he was convinced because of all of this back and forth and all of these games that it never would have happened that, that's precisely the case yeah Okay. He was convinced. With this, you have to understand that even to get one, Rome did not want to get one. He had to mm-hmm. make pressure to get this one. And even the protocol, it is said that this one is not necessary to the society because once they are recognized, every bishop can come and uh, ordain the, the priests. Mm-hmm. But that's pure, pure theory. Right. Uh, you can you can see today what's going to happen now with this new new pro, new proprio and what is happening with the ordinations of the of the new candidate in in all the ecclesia de groups. What's going to happen with them? Right. And you see there this total dependency on the bishops. One word from Rome says stop, stop giving these ordinations, and it's done. They are done. Yeah. It's uh, it's we have almost in front of us uh, like a kind of repetition of what happened at our time. It's different, but uh, you have some elements which are very similar. Yes, yes. What was the what was the mind or what was Archbishop's Archbishop Lefebvre's attitude um, or his mindset on the day of the consecrations? Uh, he was. He was going to go forward with this act, which it must have been a very strange ceremony in that sense. 
uh, at least to, from my perspective, if, if I were him, I would think it would be very strange. On one hand, it's a joyous occasion. On the other hand, it's this is a big deal. <laughs> uh, it was a big deal. And maybe we have to mention there uh, another incident which happened on the eve preceding. Uh, a black car came, a limousine, came from uh, the Nunciature, from the, so the Nuncio in Rome, in a burn. And a letter was given to a archbishop from his car, inviting him to go to step into this car. And uh, it was the last try from Rome to prevent him to make this um, uh, consecration. It's, he mentioned that even in his sermon. And that's the most strange thing because they did not do, mention why, what for. It was clear it was to prevent him as if they would have thought that Ashley was prisoner of uh, the surroundings. And so to free him, he could just jump in this car unknown from, uh, it's very strange. So yeah. yeah, well, you have strange aspects in in the surroundings of the uh, of this consecration. And I can tell you there was, it was in the air. When we, we had this procession entering into the, the huge tent, it was electrical. It was really electric. You could feel it. There was something, um, of course, it's completely different. The, the, this, um, the atmosphere, the start and the end of the ceremony is two different things. I don't say mm. black uh, day and night, it's not that, but it's something different. And it is true that at the end, there's an incredible joy, an enormous uh, from everybody. But at the start, it's something different. And it might be what you say, what you describe, we are just before something very decisive, very important. Uh, we'll, we'll get to the end. What's, what's going to happen now? And um, in the head of the archbishop, he, he had decided, he had, he, he had enough cl clarity. He would never have done something he would have understood is against God's will. God's will for him is the determining point. If he would have understood God does not want it, he would have said, okay, that's it. Mm -hmm. Very clearly, definitely. I have seen that several times. Uh, I can give you an, ex an example which has nothing to do directly with the consecration, but which shows how Ashri Lufay, once he understood that's God's will, he will not change. Uh, it was when we, he was looking for a seminary and the castle of um, um, Ars mm. was just at that moment was for sale. And Archbishop Lefebvre said this to himself, to the people around him, if well, we can pay, we can afford till that price. 
If they do not accept that, it's the sign of the divine providence that God does not want it. And so they proposed a price which was um, higher. And so they should have said, no, no, sorry, I can't. And that's it. Later on, later on, a few days or weeks later, they will come back to the Archbishop of Fever and offer him the property for his price. But the Archbishop of Fever will not take it. No, the divine providence has spoken. That's it. We, we don't go back. Divine providence does not change. Wow. The sign was given, so we will not. It seems, see? a, seems like a very simple uh, reliance on divine providence that we can learn from. Oh, uh, tremendous, yes. And here too, once he has recognized God wants it, he goes ahead. And he had enough light to understand God wants it. Mm. When uh, someone asked him, but why did you choose these four, these four people? Yes. Archbishop Lefebvre showed heaven with a finger, he showed heaven. That's what his answer. You can take it as you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's no pressure for you, Your Excellency. <laughs> but um, well, it shows again. He 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 always has been close to God. Did not. He never wanted to do his own thing. Right. And um, so I don't know how he chose and why he chose us. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> right. I, I wanted to ask you that, but you, you answered it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but all this to say, what was in his mind when he starts the ceremony is this. We go ahead. It's something pretty hot. Uh, there will be, um, he's mentioning in, uh, we, we might be excommunicated because of that. Uh, but that's the way we have to go. Wow. For God's glory. He wants God's glory. He does not want once again, his personal thing. Right. And, sorry. Yes. No, I uh, just want to say at the end of the ceremony, uh, if you look at his face and so on, he was irritating of, of, uh, of, of, of joy. Mm. He, was, he was full of joy. Relieved, certainly relieved. Yeah. I guess also that the coming of um, uh, Bishop de Castro Maya was also a help. Mm -hmm. So, at that moment, he was not alone. There were two. Yeah. And um, Bishop de Castro Maya was uh, on the position of the Pope. At that moment, he was probably, uh, I say probably, um, he had a stronger position than the Archbishop. <laughs> on mm -hmm. Is he or is he not a Pope? That really that open. Wow. <laughs> Um, we've talked about why it was justified in the Archbishop's mind, and it makes sense. Um, but, Your Excellency, to look at the canon law, did Archbishop Lefebvre go against canon law with this action? It is very interesting to see what does canon law. You have two, two perspectives which are important. One is about the the punishment foreseen by by the law 
And the other one is does canon law provide laws which could allow uh to go ahead and proceed? So you have these two questions. And on both, the answer is yes. If uh, you look at the canon law of um, 1917, so the canon law prepared by St. Pius X, published by Benedict XV, the punishment for the consecration of a new bishop is not the excommunication. Mm. It is the suspense. And the reason is usurpating a power. That is, doing something which is not in my hand. So, strictly speaking, a bishop can consecrate another bishop, yes, but he should have the permission of the Pope. And so, to, to do it without is to usurp a power. No mention at all in the old Code of Canon Law of schism. What does it mean? It means that in the eyes of the Church, for centuries, um, consecration of a bishop without the papal mandate was not considered as automatically a schism. Hmm. This idea only comes after Pius XII and the problem in China. Ah, so yes. in the 50s, in the 50s, that's what's going to change and that's what's going to dictate most probably, some say it was because of the Archbishop of Fevre, I don't know, but most probably they say in the new Code of Canon Law 83, you have the mention now that there will be an excommunication with the idea, with the perspective of schism, which was not the case, once again, in the thinking of the Church. So that means, strictly speaking, following the right of the Church, um, the consecration does not imply schism. It is a modern understanding conditioned by the Chinese happening. It's important to have that in perspective to understand that Archbishop knows canon law. He knows. They say that's new, that's after the council. The old did not say that. And so, even if it is, uh, say, the church does not want this to happen because of the good order in the church, nevertheless, there might be reasons which might allow it. And then you have. In the canon law, at another level, which is what we will call the case of necessity, you have the canon law which says that if you do something out of necessity, you cannot be punished by the uh, highest penalty foreseen by the law. And obviously, uh, even if there, there is a text from Rome after that which says, no, 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 the um, consecration of bishop does not fall under this necessity, uh, it was for Archbishop very clearly a necessity. And this necessity is not, it's absolutely necessary to make bishops, it's not that. The necessity is the church is in a state of emergency. It's something completely different. And one of the elements of this state of emergency is precisely they, they, are, they are killing the church. They are demolishing the church. 
And so in such a case, um, in case of emergency, you are left to yourself to provide the means. And you have at that moment to provide the means you have. Um, for example, you have a house which is burning. Uh, locally speaking, that's a state of emergency. Now, those who are supposed to come are the firemen. But let's suppose that the firemen do not come. Do you just stand in front of your house? No. You do all what you can, what is in your power, to extinguish the fire. So you, you take the place of the fireman trying to stop the fire. And if you have the means, you do. It's obvious. It's so simple. But that's exactly what we mean when we speak of state of emergency. And the Archbishop has the means, which are pretty extraordinary in that moment, to, to provide bishops for the future. And as the church does not care, they say the firemen are not there to, to care of these needs of so many faithful priests and so on. And that which we'll say with the Archbishop, understanding the right of the church, we say all these laws in the state of necessity, provide me the means to go ahead. And that's why he will say when they ask him, do you have the mandate from Rome? He will say, yes, we do. And he explained that in the name of the necessity. He does not pretend that Rome has sent him a paper. No, of course not. But he says we have. Contrary to what um, some broadcast is pretending, at that moment, during the ceremony, Archbishop, uh, well, it's Father Schmidtberger, who will read the mandate, which explains we are doing that in the name of, uh, because of the necessity. Mm -hmm. And so you see there, it's not schismatic. And during all this sermon, Archbishop will take the the time to try to explain what we do is not schismatic, does not correspond at all to the uh, elements of schism. Elements of schism means I want to separate myself from the church. I don't want to, to obey, but it's not just an act of obedience. It's a rejecting of the power of the church. And that's not the case of the society. And even the bishops, that's why we call ourselves auxiliary bishop first. Mm -hmm. And uh, using the words which Rome had used for in the protocol that is in the service of the society. And so strictly speaking, these bishops do not have what we call the mission, which is given by the Pope. And so we are just, we consider ourselves like uh, the good Samaritan that is, as those who should do their job don't, we, we help. <laughs> we help. That's all. <laughs> the, the Vatican shortly afterwards uh, put out the statement, Ecclesia Dei Alflicta. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think is the historical judgment of this document? Now looking back in the 21st century, looking back at it, um, what what do you think it, do you think it holds up? What do you think of this document, Your Excellency? Uh, we have always seen this document as trying to demolish 
trying to demolish the work of the society by saying, um, okay, Archbishop Lefebvre wants to continue his work, but we provide. You want, you want these things, we provide. Just come with us, we give you. And so we, we, are, we erect the Society of St. Peter. It's a start with a group of the society, priests of the society who are disturbed by the consecration and who will join Rome. And Rome will tell them, we give you everything. Everything you need, you, you'll get. And well, then well, they will never get a bishop first. And now you can see what they got with the mass. And uh, at the start, it was very clear that they would have the right to celebrate the mass and exclusively. It was, for me, that was the understanding. And so we have always understood this text and the institution, Ecclesia Dei, the, the commission, as a trick trying to, it is, well, it was the mission of Ecclesia Dei out of St. Peter to take away from Archbishop faithful and priests. Mm. So say to, to try to make a blow, the blow is, I excommunicate you. And then for the people who fear that, uh, come, come here, we, we, we will help you. And, um, Thank God, thank God it did not work. Um, we almost got, let's say, those who, who, who lost, whom we lost at that moment, they were immediately replaced by others who came in. So we, we cannot say that we had a loss. Um, it was a blow, definitely. And it was a big, big blow uh, in the relation with um, the the official church. Uh, but nevertheless, for the rest, uh, it uh, Rome started something parallel of, of the society, at least that appeared or wanted to appear like this. But we have always understood that as a, a counteraction. Mm -hmm. And when you hear now in the new motu proprio that everybody, everybody has to go back, has to go to the new mass, you say so Ecclesia Dei was something temporary. Yeah. It was just for a time. And now they, they see, well, it didn't work. So we, we just drop it. And what about the people who has received, have received all these promises and so on? Well, we shall see in the coming months. Yeah. It's the, the parallels, Your Excellency, between today and the period before um, are striking. Uh, there seemed to be a lot of hope, a lot of optimism for broadly the traditional movement um, in the church. And now all of a sudden, it seems like we're back in the 1990s again with this or oh, even worse we are back to the 70s That's <laughs> they <true>. say yeah. <laughs> we, we shall see let's say it's difficult to, to speak about the future sure. <laughs> it's, sure. it's easier to speak about the present or the past yeah there are there are some who i've i've seen this argument made um archbishop lefebvre should not have done this act um Divine Providence would have provided in some way for uh, the traditional Mass, the traditional theology and sacraments. Um, what do you say to that, Your Excellency? 
a little story which was told, told to me by a Jew. <laughs> so you have, you have a big flood. And so you have a man who goes on the top of his house. He's surrounded by water already. So you have first um, the police who comes and say, um, we, we, we come to help you. And the, the man said, no, 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 God is helping me. So you don't need to. And so then they come with a boat and say, jump in the boat. We, we are here. You, you just, just come, come. And, and the other say, no, 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 God, God is helping me. No, no, I trust in God. Um, and then you have a, a helicopter who comes and say, step, step in, <laughs> step in, take the ladder and come, we, we come to rescue you. The house is about to collapse. And the other say, no, 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 God is helping me. Uh, and finally, finally, the house collapses and he's drowned and so And Then he comes in front of God and say, hey, God, I trusted you. Why did you, why did you come to my help? And God, he says, yes, well, the policeman, the boat, the helicopter, <laughs> that's with which I came to your help. <laughs> and I may say, that's the answer. They say, divine providence, that's good. But divine providence has given us a reason and a will by which he wants us to act accordingly, according to his will. Right. And just to turn the finger and say, God come to help um, is really passive. Right. And most of the time, that's not the right answer. Right. And in our case, I think history has already shown enough that what the Archbishop did was right. Yes was correct, was in the line of divine providence. In 2000, when we meet Cardinal Castrion for the first time, Cardinal Castrion, uh, I say we, we were three bishops. We were invited after our pilgrimage. We were still in Rome, and Cardinal Castrion has just come back from uh, the holidays, and he's inviting us. So we come to him, we have a nice meal, and he tells us, well, I look at the society, the fruits are good. Hence, the Holy Ghost is there. Mm. That's what he tells us. And I say to him, oh, good, uh, your eminence, but where do these good fruits come from? And there he doesn't say anything. He stops. But he sees the fruits are good. And that will be his position till the end. And even after that, after that, for example, Monsignor Pozzo, again, a responsible from Rome, he's not going to say that to us, but he's going to say that to a um, high official person. He will say, the society of St. Pius X possesses the means to take the church out of this crisis. Mm. And you see there, you see there how people in authority in the church recognize that this is the work of God. Because the means to, 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 to help the church, we, that's not human. That's not human activity. That's God's finger. Mm -hmm. 
And when you have people in authority in the church who recognize that, it's like a stamp from from above. Oh. Um, I have about 30 other questions I would love to ask you. But <laughs> yes. We don't have time, and um, and I know you're busy, and, and today we are just talking about uh, the consecrations. Uh, but I guess yes. my, mm-hmm. my last question is, um, looking to the future, um, it's not in your hands really anymore. Now it's, it's mm-hmm. Father Pagliarani. Um, but do you foresee conditions? I'm not asking if the society will consecrate more bishops. Everyone is asking that. Uh, but could you foresee a situation where the society would need to consecrate bishops again? So many people ask also myself, the answer is, I will say pretty simple. The answer is the following. When the conditions which dictated the first consecration will be met, we'll proceed like the first time. Okay. And that means we will go to Rome, we'll tell them we need bishops and so on, as the Archbishop did. We're going to follow the same procedure when the conditions are met. And for the time being, they are not yet there, but of course, the Superior General is reflecting on this question, which is uh, major. Yes, yes. Uh, You must be a little bit happy it's not in your hands anymore, Your Excellency. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) That's okay. They say, once again, for us, it is very clear that such a um, decision requests to understand where is God's will. It's again, it's the only answer. If, mm-hmm. if God wants us to stop, we stop. If he wants to go ahead, we go ahead. But So we need to find a way to recognize where is his will. Yes. And, and that's now in the hands of the Super General, yes. Yeah. Your Excellency, thank you for not only for your time today, but for all of the good you've done for so many souls. So um, I can't say it enough. Thank you for, for the sacrifices you've made and everything you've done. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 42 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next week, we'll turn to the situation in which the Society of St. Pius X found itself right after the 1988 consecrations and where it still finds itself today. What actually is the status of the SSPX? Is it a parallel church? Is it schismatic? Is it part of the church, but not really part of the church? The Vatican seems to not really know either. So is the SSPX just the Schrodinger's cat of the Catholic Church? We'll dig into that next week with Father Robinson. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and to the SSPX News English YouTube channel so that you won't miss next week's episode or any of our future ones. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on SSPXpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project and our next series as well. Until next week, thank you for listening and God bless you.